good morning or afternoon or evening, depending on when you're listening to this recording. My name is James Lima, and I'm the pastoral intern and music director at Livingstone Church. And whether you're a member of Livingstone or you're just listening to one of our services for the first time or you're anywhere in between, we're glad that you can join us, even if it's in this interesting format. And it's our prayer that you would be encouraged, fed, and pointed to Jesus to worship and enjoy him during this service. The announcements uh, today are, are pretty short. First, if you are a part of Livingstone Church, please continue checking your emails regularly for updates. This week, we're going to be doing video calls for both our men's group on Wednesday evening and women's group on Thursday evening, as well as having our congregational check-in video call on Monday and our Wednesday morning prayer meeting. Second, if this is your first time joining us, you will need the worship guide, which can be found in a link online next to this service audio to follow along with our liturgy. And if you'd like more information about Livingstone Church and how you can get involved, you can find contact information for me and the other staff here at Livingstone on our website, livingstoneoshkosh.org. Let's begin our service now with the call to worship in your worship guide from 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13. I'll lead us with the celebrant reading, and you'll respond by reading the people section. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Let's pray. Gracious, glorious, and good Father, we long for the day that we can bless you in the presence of the assembly again. But even now we know that you are with us. We also know that you are powerful, glorious, victorious, and majestic. This world is yours, and we are yours, and we can trust in your powerful hand, knowing that you are working all things for the good of your people and for your glory. By your Holy Spirit, help our distracted hearts and minds to be focused on you and attentive to your word today. Amen. Let's sing together, Be Thou My Vision. The words are on the second page of the worship guide. i 
waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, As we come to our time of confession, I want us to think for a moment about how well we apply our theology, our knowledge of God. We believe that God is active in the world, that he didn't just create the universe and then let it run its course. And we also affirm the sovereignty of God, that nothing can happen to us or in this world apart from his command. However, In our circumstances now, how often do we really apply those beliefs? It's so easy to focus solely on the latest coronavirus news, the updated numbers, all the different politics involved, and fail to see beyond those things that God is active in this world and in our lives. Will we take time to pay attention to what God is doing in us and in the world? Could it be that God's intention is to shake us from our distracted lives? Could it be that God is calling us to repentance, that he's showing us our sin, that he's intending to purify us? Before we sing our song of confession, 
I'm going to give us a time of silence to consider how God is showing you your sin, how God is purifying you and calling you to repentance in this time. Then after that time of silence, we will plead together for God's mercy as we sing Psalm 51, God be merciful to me. And in gladness hear thy 
for us is that God's purposes will not be thwarted. Hear the good news about what God has done for us in Christ, what he's doing in us now, and the unshakable promises that he gives us for the future. So listen to the assurance of pardon from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's sing together of our hope that we have in Christ as we sing Christ, our hope in life and death. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our hope? That our souls to Him belong. 
to the fifth page of the worship guide, you'll find the Apostles' Creed. Creeds uh, and confessions, they're summaries of the Christian faith, and they've been around for an incredibly long time. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul quotes from what was most likely an early Christian creed when he says, 
For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The focus is on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But what's really important to see is that what Paul and the early church confessed was more than just a list of neat ideas, but reality. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that if Christ hasn't been risen, one of the pieces of that creed or confession, if Christ hasn't been risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He writes that if the resurrection wasn't real and we have hope only in this life, that Christians are of all people most to be pitied. You see, when we confess the basics of our faith, the things that we confess are more than just words on a page to be read. They are the vital truths and realities that change everything. So let's boldly confess our faith together with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of everlasting. Amen. Good morning, Livingstone Church. This is Bill Acker. I'll be bringing the message this morning. Let me read from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, that is Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. <clears throat> when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who 
are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury or in king's courts. What then did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, sometimes a job is just different than what you are kind of expecting it to be. When I was in high school, I went to work at a grocery store and I started out bagging groceries. It was very simple. I could do that without any complications. And one day the manager came to me and said, Bill, I'm moving you to the produce department. And I just said, okay, but I was thinking, I know absolutely nothing about produce. When I was moving there, I learned what I needed to know and did a good job and worked there for two years before I quit and went off to college. So sometimes when we, we look at things, we have doubts. We're not sure how things are going to work out. And we doubt if we're going to finish our degree. We doubt that we'll be able to get a good job. We doubt that if we get a job, uh, we may not be able to do it right. We doubt that we might be able to find a spouse and get married. We doubt that we may um, believe the things that we read in Scripture. And people doubt about the reality of Jesus' work as a Messiah. <clears throat> as a result, our doubts we often are confused about our life, who we are and what we should be doing. But Jesus was never confused about his work as a Messiah. Although Jesus did not always do what other people thought he should be doing, Jesus knew he was doing the work of the Messiah. Even if other people sometimes were perplexed about the things that he did. So my message this morning has two parts. <clears throat> the first, <coughs> excuse me, the first is, the question that comes from John the Baptist, are you the one or should we look for someone else? The second is Jesus' answer to, or rather Jesus' questions to the crowds that were with him. So first, the question John the Baptist asked Jesus. Now remember John's situation at this time. He was in prison. He had called out King Herod for marrying his brother Philip's wife. The king was Herod Antipas, a son of Herod the Great. After Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided and ruled by four sons. Three of those sons had the name Herod in their name, which is a little confusing, but here we mean Herod 
Antipas. So we read in Mark 6 that it was um, Herod had sit and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But he could not, she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, it may seem strange that an unbeliever would hear a believer gladly. But something similar to this happened um, about 800 years ago during the time of the Crusades when Francis of Assisi, later known as St. Francis, went down to Egypt and wanted to speak to the, uh, the uh, Sultan of Egypt. And he crossed enemy lines. Um, the uh, Muslims were in high spirits. They had just defeated the Crusaders in several battles. And so St. Francis and his companion were captured. They were beaten. But nevertheless, St. Francis got to go in and see the Sultan. And uh, they actually became friends. They were, he was there several weeks. And we'd go in, they would talk, and uh, he tried to convert the Sultan to Christianity. The Sultan tried to convert St. Francis to Islam. Uh, but nevertheless, they became, became friends. Now, St. Francis was a little different. He was kind of strange. Uh, he would preach to anyone and everything, even preach to animals. And he was someone who had taken a vow of poverty. He wore rags. Uh, he wouldn't take any money from the sultan or anything like that. And the sultan liked him. And uh, we, we view St. Francis as sort of a strange character, as I mentioned. But we still use uh, some of his hymns today. One of them, probably the most familiar, is All Creatures of Our God and King. We, we still sing that. So St. Francis left, although the sultan was not converted, a strange thing happened, and that was the Franciscan order had a significant presence in the Middle East for 800 years. In fact, last summer was the 800th anniversary of that meeting. So that friendship seemed to have brought a lot of goodwill for the, for the church. But at any rate, um, John asked the question, are you the one if we look for somebody else? Now John was in prison, it was not a pleasant experience. He was later beheaded because Herodias hated him so much. But uh, anyway, he, he asked this question. So we know that John had a significant ministry of preaching and preparing the way for the Messiah. So the question seems a little bit strange because he's the one who pointed to Jesus you know, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we don't know exactly what prompted John's question. It may be that because of the harsh conditions of the prison, John thought Jesus should come and release him. Wasn't the Messiah going to release the captives? But as far as we know, Jesus didn't even visit John in prison. Or it could be that John had preached about the vengeance that the Messiah was going to bring on the wicked. You know, he, his ministry kind of was centered on that. That seemed to be the, the end of his sermons, you know, that the, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
or his winning fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barns, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. <clears throat> now Jesus was doing good works, which I'm going to see the acts of judgment which he had preached were coming. It's almost like John is saying, you know, enough of this good deed stuff. You know, you've done enough of that. Let's see that vengeance. Let's see the fire and brimstone. Let's see the chaff being burned in the fire. See the axe at the root of those trees. Now, perhaps John wanted Jesus to be more like Samson the judge, who lived in ancient Israel. It seems like Samson was always striking down people. You know, three, uh, 30 here, a 1,000 there. He burned grain fields. He was always fighting. And then at the end of his life, he killed 3,000 Philistines at the house where they were making sport of him and uh, offering sacrifices to their god Dagon. Samson pulled down the pillars holding up the roof, and he was killed along with uh, 3,000 Philistines. <coughs> Jesus gives an answer to John's disciples. Now it says that uh, in that hour Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. Now many who were blind, he bestowed sight. He said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It looks as though Jesus very deliberately performed these miracles while John's disciples were right there with him. And the disciples saw these miraculous things that Jesus was doing. And Jesus wants them to see firsthand that he is doing the work of the Messiah. Now, no doubt these disciples will be familiar with the words of the Old Testament, which spoke of the Messiah, showing compassion to the poor, the brokenhearted. And Jesus instructs John's disciples to go back and report to John the things they have seen and heard. Jesus was performing actions that were in keeping with the work of the Messiah. They could encourage John by telling him about these miracles and the crowds of people who were coming to be healed and to hear Jesus preach. But what about Jesus bringing judgment? Was John wrong to preach that the Messiah was coming with great and fearsome judgment against the wicked? <clears throat> Before we can answer that question, we need to understand certain things about prophecy and a prophet's ability to see future events. We sometimes say that prophets had a cosmic perspective as they would look down the corridors of time, they would see events that were going to take place, but they couldn't see the distance between those events. And sometimes they would see events that were separated by time as just one event. And this certainly is the case with the coming of Christ. So while they predicted um, and preached that Christ was coming, the Messiah was coming, he was going to do these, these good things, he was also going to come with vengeance. They had to learn that the, the vengeance part of Christ's coming was reserved for a second time when Christ would return. So it's like if you're traveling in a car across the Great Plains, you see the Rocky Mountains in the distance, you see all the various mountain peaks, it looks like everything's just right one against the other. But when you get up there, you realize there is distance between those mountain peaks, which you can't see from a distance. So Jesus was doing the work of the Messiah. Uh, when he began his ministry, he read from Isaiah 61, 
And that passage kind of ends with, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, when Jesus used that passage in the synagogue at Nazareth, he stopped reading after, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He knew that vengeance was reserved for a future time. So Isaiah may have thought when the Messiah came, all these things would happen at once. And John may have thought the same thing. On the other hand, Jesus knew that when he came to earth, having taken on human form, he was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus' earthly ministry was not marked with judgment. Rather, his public ministry was one of preaching, healing, casting out demons, raising the dead. Of course, at the end of his public ministry, he offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. He is our substitute, suffered the wrath of God in our place. After he was died, he was buried, rose again on the third day, appeared to his disciples and to others for a period of 40 days. <clears throat> then he ascended into heaven. And just as he was taken into heaven, while his disciples looked on, two angels immediately appeared and told the disciples that Jesus would return to earth in the same way they saw him going into heaven. We know that at some point in time, Jesus will return to earth. At that time, he will return with judgment on those who are unbelievers and oppose God. Actually, some of that judgment even begins before Jesus returns. Many of the events that Jesus said were necessary to take place before he returns are really judgments on the earth and the people of earth. Now, time doesn't permit us to go into all the details about Christ's second coming, but let me just mention a couple of things before you hear. In Matthew 24, 3 through 8, we read that as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when, will the, when these things will be, <clears throat> and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of war, so that you see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Of course, the book of Revelation tells us a great deal more about the judgments that are coming on earth. We read things that will happen when the, the Lamb opens the uh, seven seals on the scroll, when the trumpets blow, when the bowls of God's wrath are poured out. But just before the section about the bowls of wrath, there's a very graphic description in Revelation speaking about Christ's second coming and the angels harvesting people of the earth. First, the uh, the grain is going to be harvested, the believers are going to be harvested, and then the wicked are going to be harvested. And they can expect nothing but God's wrath. So we read in Revelation 14, 17 through 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire. Then he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for his grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. 
and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia, which is about 184 miles. That's, that sounds pretty scary. That's definitely vengeance. That's wrath. And this reaping we see in Revelation 14 takes place at the end of the age and happens in conjunction with Christ's second coming to earth. So yes, Jesus is going to bring judgment on the earth on those who oppose God. Jesus goes on to say, Blessed is man who does not fall away on account of me. It seems Jesus realizes that many people were expecting something quite different in a Messiah than what they saw in him. Jesus did not come defeating the Romans, driving out enemy armies. Uh, he, he comes not meaning out judgment left and right, but pronouncing blessings on those who believe on him and those who don't fall away. He feeds the hungry. He heals the sick. He does these things, which are also the work of the Messiah. So John the Baptist disciples do leave. They return to report to John things they saw Jesus say and do. And then Jesus asked the crowds questions, <clears throat> a number of questions. People were following him. They saw all these things take place. They asked them some questions. He said, what did you go out into the desert to see? Did you go see a reed shaken by the wind? Now, John the Baptist was not a feeble person blown here and there by people's criticisms. Brother John knew who he was and understood his ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was a very strong individual. So what did you go out in the desert to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? No, John the Baptist was not dressed in royal splendor, wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. It says the word Jesus uses meaning soft can mean soft to the touch or even effeminate. Perhaps Jesus was saying something like, you know, what you go out to say, sissy and fancy clothes? No, John was a very rugged individual. What you go out to the desert to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? And here Jesus says, yes, John the Baptist was a prophet. We sometimes say that John was the last Old Testament prophet. John entered the Old Testament era. era and coming, the coming of Jesus brought us into the new era. As we said before, John was the messenger who prepared the way for Jesus the Messiah. Then Jesus says something that seems rather unusual. In verse 27 of Luke 7, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. <clears throat> now certainly Jesus is paying a compliment to John the Baptist. As far as prophets go, he is right up there at the top. Yet the prophets spoke of and predicted the coming of the kingdom of God. They lived in anticipation of the coming kingdom. Jesus introduces the kingdom. We no longer live in anticipation of the kingdom, whether we live in the realization of the kingdom. In that sense, Jesus is saying that those who see the realization of God's kingdom are greater than those who lived in anticipation of that kingdom. Now, we also recognize that while we see the kingdom of God as being already here, there are aspects of the kingdom that are not completely realized. With that, we have to wait for Christ's second coming and the consummation or the end of the age. Perhaps you heard the expression we sometimes use regarding the kingdom already, but not yet. 
The kingdom of God is already here, but the full realization of the kingdom is not yet realized. The people who had been baptized by John thought very highly of him. They appreciated these comments by Jesus. On the other hand, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected John. They were not baptized by him. Jesus says they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. God's part of John's part of John's ministry was calling people back to God's law, both re, but by rejecting John, the Pharisees and the lawyers were saying they did not want God's purpose for themselves. Next, Jesus addresses those who rejected both John the Baptist and himself. He asks the question, to what can I compare people of this generation? Using an illustration of children playing, he describes the generation as being those children who never want to play what the other children suggest. That is, if the kids are playing a lively tune, they don't want to dance to it. If they're kind of singing a dirge, they don't want to play like there's a funeral and weep. Uh, they're not satisfied with anything. <clears throat> That's what Jesus is saying. You know, basically, those who reject both him and John were not satisfied with anything. They rejected God, John because he was too austere. Now, John was set apart from his birth. He was dedicated to God, such so he could not drink alcoholic drinks. He may not have been a Nazarite, because nothing said about John not cutting his hair, but he did live a strange life. Living in the desert, having a strange diet, locusts and wild honey, and he was just too serious for some people. In contrast, Jesus came and lived a very different life. While John lived in isolation, Jesus was very social. We read of him going to weddings, eating in people's homes. He had such a social life that some accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Many people rejected Jesus because he just seemed too frivolous and lighthearted. So Jesus points simply that people did not really reject John because he was too austere, or they didn't reject Jesus because he was too carefree. Those are just excuses people would use to justify the rejection of John or Jesus. What they were rejecting was the word of God that both John and Jesus preached. And perhaps that's why there was such a contrast between these two men, so that people really were left without any excuse. Now we do come to the conclusion of the matter. The, the Messiah has come. Some in his generation accepted him, but many rejected him. Today, the situation is very similar. It seems people often reject the gospel, at least in part, because they do not really understand it, and it doesn't make sense to them. People have their own idea of how salvation is accomplished, and they reject anything that's contrary to their own thinking. That is, many people think that they have to be good or do good works in order to be saved. Hearing that salvation is by grace, by faith in Christ, it just seems too far-fetched to be true. In the mid-1800s, many women in Vienna, Austria, they went to the general hospital in town there, they would go there to give birth. Unfortunately, the mortality rate for women in the hospital was rather high. In the ward where the women were attended by physicians, the death rate was around 10%. Women were, women were dying of what was commonly called childbed fever. On the other hand, the death rate in the ward where the expectant mothers were attended by midwives, the death rate was around 2%. So maybe when the wine world would keep going to the physicians where they had a 10% death rate as opposed to 2%. But nevertheless, 
Women were dead at the hospital, expected to give birth, recover, and then head back home. But as these women entered the hospital, they were examined by doctors, and then they became sick and they died. Died of childbed fever. After a woman died, her body would be taken down to the morgue. The doctor would perform a, uh, an autopsy on her. And then, without really washing his hands, I guess he just wiped the blood off, he'd go back up to the wards and would examine new women who had just checked into the hospital. And um, there was one doctor who figured out what the problem was, but he was ridiculed for years because of his suggestion, but he was right. His name was Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis. He believed the doctors performing the autopsies of the dead women were transmitting the disease back to the healthy women. He noticed the doctor performed the autopsy, then without washing their hands, would go to examine healthy women. Those doctors who listened to Semmelweis did see a drop in the infection rate of the healthy women. Around 1850, Ignace Semmelweis saved lives with three words, which sound kind of interesting today. His advice was, wash your hands. He even developed a cleaning solution of chlorinated lime, which the physicians could use, and that would not only wash off um, the um, particulate matter from the autopsy, or we know now viruses or bacteria, but also get rid of the uh, putrid smell that came from them handling uh, corpses. That sounds pretty gross, but it was a reality back then. But Semmelweis uh, developed a cleaning solution of chlorinated lime, which physicians could use. And as more and more physicians started to use that, the mortality rate started to drop. About 50 years later, in the 19th century, scientists did discover viruses. Then into the 20th century, vaccines were developed protecting us from serious diseases such as polio and so on. Now, God has given us special revelation which tells us what we need for salvation. If you do trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation, thank God that he's worked in your life in a special way that has brought about your salvation. And we know the Holy Spirit applies Christ's work to our lives. If you are not a believer, you have serious doubts about the Christian faith, I, I ask that you even pray that God will allow you to understand the truth of his word. Be willing to put aside notions you have about how you can be forgiven and embrace the truth of the gospel. Just remember, if you can wash your hands and clean the dirt or viruses from your hands, but in regard to spiritual cleaning, you're not able to wash yourself clean. You need to have a spiritual cleaning. Cleaning so thorough that it takes you from being dead spiritually to being alive spiritually. In Titus 3.5, we read, We are saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. As it were, let Christ be the one who washes you and cleanses you and makes you alive spiritually. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which instructs us. <clears throat> we thank you for the ministry of Christ. We thank you for the salvation which he worked for us. And I pray for those who don't know that salvation yet, that you would work in their lives, opening their hearts, their minds, to the truth of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Let's respond together by singing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. 
Oh 